Welcome to The Unconventional Path, entrepreneurship and innovation stories and ideas. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from the Capital Region campus of Clarkson University in Schenectady, New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and now the David D. Ray Professor of Innovation and Entrepreneurship here at Clarkson University. And guten Tag from Münster, Germany. I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us this week. We hope you enjoy our podcast. The two of us want to take the lessons we've learned over the last three decades as entrepreneurs, investors, managers, and professors, and leverage our network of interesting friends, former students, business partners, and others we've met along the way in our life's journey to bring you interesting stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. Hey, before we get to today's guest, a quick thank you to our sponsors, Clarkson University and the Minster University of Applied Sciences. And now let's jump right into today's interview with Devin Watson, who's had a really interesting career in venture capital, IT startups, and then took the next step in his career and moved over to a very large organization, Diebold Nixdorf, a $4.5 billion top 10 global financial technology leader, where Devin currently is the chief marketing officer. So with that brief intro, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, listeners. Uh, today we have a special treat. Uh, we're doing a Skype interview uh, with uh, Devin Watson, and I'll let him introduce himself uh, in a minute. Uh, but Mike and I are both on the line here with him. So it turns out that Mike and I both know Devin, uh, sort of in different capacities. Uh, Devin and I worked together in uh, early days of the VC firm that I was one of the co-founders of, and uh, Devin and I worked closely together, and uh, that's when I got to engage with him and interact with him, and we've kept in touch ever since. And uh, Mike, how did you know oh, Devin? As a Clarkson alum, Devin has been very giving of his time back to alumni. So as when I was on the faculty at Clarkson, uh, Devin worked with our uh, first-year business program extensively for several years and gave them good guidance and, uh, and mentoring along the way. So, And then, Bela, when you and I met, we both realized that we knew Devin mutually. And so that kind of yes. closed the triangle. And when we started this podcast, we said we got to have Devin on the on the interview list because he's a real unique individual. So uh, let's uh, dive into this. So uh, we're doing this on Skype, folks. So the sound quality may be not uh, as good as uh, some of our other interviews, uh, but it should be wonderful. So uh, exactly. We have a great guest to make up for any uh, crappy sound quality. Uh, so Devin, are you there? I am. Thank you for the uh Kind introduction, gentlemen. Yeah, excellent. So, Devin, uh, when you go to a cocktail party and uh, you go there and you shake someone's hand and they ask you, uh, who are you and what do you do? How do you introduce yourself? <laughs> so, at a cocktail party, I would uh, usually dodge the, uh, the professional intro and I would say that I'm an uh, over-enthusiastic ice climber a uh, recovering wakeboarder, snowboarder, and father of two. That's uh, that's what's front and center for me. But professionally, I would say that I'm you know the chief marketing officer of the number six global financial technology company. I'm a prior startup and uh, VC guy, uh, so I've got kind of an interesting background spanning small companies, investment vehicles, and then large companies from a, both a growth and acquisition standpoint. So that's me in a nutshell. Uh, very good. So uh, it's Devin Watson, 
Uh, just, I just wanted to get your last name in there because we've all been calling you Devin. And uh, what's the company you work for now, Devin? So I work for a company called Diebold Mixdorf. Uh, we're a global company. We're about $4.5 billion in, in revenue, operating in about 130 countries around the world. And we sell financial technology solutions. So we work with uh, banks and retailers around the world. Most of the, the top banks, most of the top retailers are using our uh, solutions. And we provide them with everything from software that manages how you bank, so mobile uh, banking, uh, software to power some of the branch experience, software to power the ATM channel, uh, and then devices and services, so things like ATMs, point of sale, self-checkout, like you would see at the grocery store, and then a range of services to keep all of that stuff up and running so that consumers can bank and shop and have a fantastic experience with our clients. So, Devin, a $4.5 billion a year global company, what the heck is an entrepreneur doing in a place like that? <laughs> well, uh, funny story. Uh, I arrived there by selling them a bunch of software as an entrepreneur and uh, was lucky enough to meet a number of the senior management team during that process. Uh, you, of course, remember Prendo, which was a, a cloud technology software company I was with, and I was leading sales there. And, uh, met this company through it, and they decided back in 2012 that they were going to really embark on a, a long-term transformation to become much more of a, a software and services firm and move away from some of the device and, and manufacturing routes while, while still keeping that as kind of a, a core competency. And to navigate that, they really wanted to bring somebody in who understood how to think in terms of portfolio theory. So if you're a large corporation and you're you know, struggling with your, your change agenda, you're thinking through how you're going to innovate and attack the marketplace, uh, who better to help figure that out than someone who's thought in terms of multiple strategic bets, as a VC is trained to do? And then has some uh, capability to, to execute on that, which is, you know, the entrepreneurial side. Um, and there's, you know, an a, a old saying that uh, I'm sure you're familiar with that, you know, entrepreneurs make terrible employees, uh, which is often true. And before I, I joined the company, uh, I warned the executives that were hiring me that, you know, I wouldn't have a lot of tolerance for bureaucracy. Uh, I would be in a bull in the china shop when it came to uh, any type of, of process that slowed things down. Um, and I really wouldn't have a lot of tolerance for what I call non-propulsive activity, uh, right? <laughs> which <laughs> large organizations, you know, they do have a certain need to, to put some guardrails around things. But at the same time, uh, you can see all across big companies how they uh, overdo that and, and turn a lot of work into completely non-propulsive work. So, uh, it's actually worked out very well. Uh, I've had, uh, you know, an executive team that's been very tolerant of that style. Uh, I've been able to deliver a lot of results that have moved the needle for the company. And, uh, you know, recently joined the, the C ranks as a chief marketing officer. So it's been a, it's been a very interesting adjustment and ride moving from, you know, the, the VC and startup world into a large corporation, but, 
I find that that actually makes you uh, an animal with some different skill sets that can be very beneficial. Cool. So let's talk a little bit, Devin, about your early years in your history. Where'd you grow up? Uh, where'd you go to high school? Where'd you go to college? What'd you study? Sure. So uh, I grew up in the Finger Lakes of New York um, and uh, went to school at Skinny Atlas High School, went to Clarkson University, uh, initially uh, in a misguided attempt to, be, to become a wakeboard designer. That was my mission in life when I went to college. I chose Clarkson specifically because they had an engineering and management program that was kind of a, a cool dual major that not many people were offering. Um, and that was during the dot-com boom. So I arrived at Clarkson as a, uh, a sponsored wakeboarder who thought he had the engineering chops to design one. Uh, turns out all I really remember from my foray into trying to come up with a design and uh, CAD rendering that complex is that your planing velocity for any surface is four-fifths the square root of the waterline. Uh, I still have no idea what that means. So being that it was the midst of the, the dot-com boom when I was in college, I decided it was probably a better idea to trade in my wetsuit, uh, figure out how to squeeze myself into a business suit, and finished up my major uh, in management information systems so I could get some exposure to, to how to code and make all this wonderful software work. And then I went from there to a small IT consultancy where I kind of, you know, learned how to, to run some big projects uh, and data warehousing, things like that. But I quickly figured out, you know, we were reselling other people's software and it became uh, very apparent to me that that was no way to get ahead in the world. So I came up with an idea for a hosted uh, reporting and analysis uh, product and in modern times, we would call that an analytic software as a service offering, but none of those words existed. So I came up with the idea, and my brother and I uh, wrote the software. We got a couple paying clients, uh, and then we went out to look for this thing called venture capital because it turns out that growing a hosted software offering takes money that we didn't have. And uh, through that process, I got to kind of understand the VC world a little bit. Uh, I met with, you know, a number of different firms. Uh, by that point, it had turned into the absolute nuclear winter of venture capital uh, funding because we were on the, the tail end of the dot-com bust. And it was, a, it was a very illuminating but very painful, painful, painful process as an entrepreneur. Uh, and it's, you know, in retrospect, it's kind of funny how many people hated the idea of hosting software uh, with customer data in order to, to provide it um, rather than going on-prem. Uh, but I got to know the industry. Uh, we Ultimately, we weren't able to, to raise any capital. Uh, nobody wanted to, you know, write a couple million-dollar check to a 23-year-old kid with a kind of wacky idea. So we shut down the business. My brother went on to, to IBM. I decided that come hell or high water, I was going to be on the other side of that table the next time I had one of these discussions. So I set out with uh, the pretty audacious idea that I was going to become a venture capitalist. And uh, as you probably know, there's you know only a couple thousand of those jobs on planet Earth. I did not know that at the time, and there are 
you know, mainly occupied by, you know, folks from a very few number of schools. So it's really hard to get in. Uh, but I wrote an investment report and I sat in a, a junky apartment that I could barely afford, you know, eating ramen and sending this investment report to every single VC firm that I could possibly hunt down, calling them. It's a very small industry, so it got to be a little bit of a joke. Uh, and I did not send my investment report uh, to my future boss, Bela. Uh, they got it from another VC firm. I don't know if you remember this part of the, the background, but it's pretty funny. Uh, so I think it was our friends at uh, the fund in Albany that actually passed it to you. And then I got a, a call from either Baylor or Brad at High Peaks, and they said, you know, remember you pitching, you didn't send us this investment report, you know, looking for a job, what gives? And I said, well, you guys shot me down pretty hard. I said, well, we thought your idea was crap, but we thought you were pretty good. So why don't you come in and have an interview? <laughs> so I drove on down to Troy, New York and uh, got hired onto the team and spent the next five years uh, learning all about the, the venture capital world and, you know, the, the world of growing software companies uh, working with Bela. So Devin, I think you said something there that actually there's two things I want to explore a little bit that I think our readers will be very, our readers, our listeners will be very interested in. Um, one is sort of this approach to getting a job, right? You, most people send out resumes, uh, but what you did, and I, and I want to dive into this sort of where the motivation, the idea for this came from and, and how you approached it was what you did was you said, look, here's the industry I want to work in. Here's something that these people value. And so you went and did an example of that piece of work. So it's sort of like an artist, a graphic artist trying to get a job at an art firm is going to send them their portfolio of, you know, art, art stuff that they have done. So you took sort of a similar approach, which I think is very interesting and, and most of the times uh, not done, uh, very rarely outside of sort of the architecture or performing arts, fine arts sort of, ver you know, uh, industries. So where did that notion come from? And, and um, talk about that a little bit. Sure, sure. So actually, one of the, the things that spawned the idea, um, <clears throat> and I'll give you a couple examples of where I've seen a similar approach uh, in other folks over the years that's, that's really worked. So, so back when I was you know, in, in high school and college, I was getting paid in the summers to, to wakeboard, which I still maintain as the best uh, exchange of value ever even though it didn't involve much money. Um, and I remember one very vivid lesson where the marketing director for Hyperlight, which is the, the wakeboard company I rode for, was in town and a TV crew showed up to this lake where we were doing some sort of expo. And I went jogging up and, I, you know, so Mr. So-and-so, you know, the TV crew's here. And he stares at me and he goes, Devin, what the hell do I care? Go do it. And I was like, well, I've, I've never done a TV interview. And he goes, do you have any idea why I pay a punk kid like you with a mohawk to hang around in a boat all summer? And I said, no, I honestly have no idea. He said, well, back up. What do you think we sell? And I said, we sell wakeboards, sir. He goes, no, we don't. We sell an image. That is the one thing that we sell, and that is why I pay you. And it was, you know, it was comical at the time. But in retrospect, it's one of the most brilliant marketing lessons I'd ever heard because you are, you are always marketing an image, right? And, and, you know, even in my, my current 
role. Uh, selling financial technology solutions, these are very complex, right? These are big decisions. Uh, but people are also buying in because they believe in who we are as a 20,000-person organization. So when I, when I was trying to break into the VC world, what better way to prove, right, that you are that archetype to, to sell the image than to do the actual work? So, uh, so I, I wrote that report with that in mind to, you know, cut through the clutter and, you know, forget the, the pedigree on my wacky resume. Let's, let's look at what I can actually do for you. And, you know, people also pay attention when you provide them a little bit of value, right? And the same applies to networking. You know, if I, uh, you know, want to connect to somebody, offer them something, you know, to introduce them to somebody else. Uh, you know, I think whenever we're looking at our professional networks and somebody reaches out and says, I'm trying to move my career in this direction, I always try to think of two or three people to introduce them to. And if you can provide some value, people generally pay attention. <clears throat> and if you can prove that you can do the work, uh, then all that's left to prove is that you can fit into the culture, right? So that's how I'd, I'd thought about it. And, uh, you know, it was funny. You know, Mike mentioned in the, the opening uh, some of these um, business plan panels that I've, I've sat on at, at Clarkson. And, you know, obviously, Bailey, you and I at, at High Peak Ventures, we, we sat on dozens of these every year. Uh, so most of them are a bit of a blur. But one of the ones that always stands out to me, and Mike, I don't know if you remember this, we had uh, uh, the freshmen all had to come up with a business plan that they could actually run on campus. They present the business plan freshman year, second, uh, sorry, first semester, second semester, they actually have to run this thing. So it has to be pretty nuts and bolts it can't be pie in the sky because they actually have to do it and one of the teams came up and you could ask for i think it was maybe up to two thousand dollars five thousand something like that they asked for 50 percent more than the limit and a number of the panelists kind of gave them a hard time why are you doing that etc cetera, etc cetera. they wanted to get a machine that would help them engrave or, or print logos on glassware i think it was and and I asked, you know, so why why do you think you're confident enough to raise more capital than everybody else here? And they they didn't realize what they were sitting on, but they were sitting on the perfect answer. And they they took out a three ring binder, and they go, well, we we already went around and we pre sold our entire year of projections, so we've we've got orders. We just we just need the extra money so we can actually fulfill on the demand we've already locked up. And I mean. At that point, why wouldn't you give them the money, right? So they had done that one little extra thing that proved far more than anybody else that they could actually get it done. And I think that's a, you know, that's a huge differentiator if you can pull off a move like that. I love these things, Devin, because I'm going to call it a Devinism. But when you talked about avoiding non-propulsive activities, everything from you sending out the the investment reports to these students pre-selling the binders. These are all, I think, really cool examples of propulsive activities, right? That that they help somebody move forward, and they're they're not time wasting and, and energy wasting. So I like that exactly. Devonism. I don't know if you invented it, but I'm going to give you credit for it. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, and, and actually, uh, you know, funny thing in, in retrospect. Uh, at least I, only, I remember doing one of the deals uh, from my investment report, uh, and Bela, that was that was Allworks, uh, which was a 
you know, small business telecommunications device company in, in Rochester that we invested in and, and did well with. So it was pretty cool to see that actually come to fruition. Well, that's how it's supposed to work. <laughs> right? <laughs> so the, that's, that's exactly how it's supposed to work. You look at an industry, figure out an investment, make it, and hopefully you make some money. So you've uh, you've been on both sides of the table on on the VC and raising capital part, and um, you know I think again we have many listeners that are entrepreneurs. They're thinking about raising capital. What sort of you know is the top three bits of advice that you would give to someone who's thinking about raising capital, not just necessarily from a VC. Um, but sort of, you know, raising private equity of some sort. And, and what do you think are the things that, uh, let me ask the question a different way. What are the things that people screw up the most? Because <laughs> I think a lot of people answer the question of, you know, what is, what's the three most important things? Well, I'm going to flip it over. Like, what's the thing that people screw up the most? Absolutely. So l- let me start with the with the what not to do and then go to the what they screw up the most. Um, I think for most people contemplating raising capital, the best answer, you know, at least half the time is don't. There's usually a way to bootstrap something uh, and finance it with customer revenue. And that's all that should always be option number one, you know, if if at all possible. Yeah, sort of another another way of, yeah, so exactly another way of saying that it was the best way to raise capital is to sell your product or service to your customers. Exactly, exactly. Because then you're 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 proving it, right? You're you're doing the real work that shows that this isn't pie in the sky. It's something people actually want to part with their money for. Uh, you've got some level of of product market fit. Um, barring that, if it is the right model and it isn't always, uh, to go raise external and dilutive capital, because whether you're raising it from, you know, funds, friends, families, or fools, any which way, it's going to come out of your your equity. So it's a non-trivial decision. The the thing that I think usually gets mucked up the worst um, is an over-reliance on two things. One, wacky projections and (laughs) This is a Bela-ism that I use nearly monthly uh, when I was uh, in a prior role as vice president of of strategy and I was working on a lot of uh, M&A work. Um, I would use this almost daily. Everybody knows there's only two facts about projections. Number one, they're wrong. Fact number two, they're high. (laughs) The only two facts we have. Everything else is a, some sort of a, a guess or assumption. Uh, and it's one of my favorite Bela-isms to a, apply. Uh, so I think that's one of the, the, the mistakes people make is um, really just going too far down the, the path of financially modeling stuff that really doesn't matter, right? The, there's, there's no net present value calculation or any other silly stuff that might get taught in an MBA program that's going to actually prove that you can generate cash flow with this product. Yeah. yeah that's, that's you know, no, uh, go ahead. Uh, one of the things I was going to say uh, is that one of the ways that I have characterized that in my class 
is to say that the only thing you need to do with your financial projections is to make them believable. Because I know they're wrong, you know they're wrong, <laughs> but if we just got, they just got to be believable. And, and the challenge with many financial projections is they're not believable. Right. Well, and my, my thing that I've always told the students is pro forma is Latin for bullshit. <laughs> I love that one. That'll be my new micism. We're, okay, uh, it's one it, apiece now. We're all even here. Yeah. Bela will win, uh, though. He's older. Oh, for sure. For sure. These are cumulative over time. Um, so the, the, the second uh, thing that I see people really messing up is trying to come up with some sort of business plan that gets you all the way to success. And, you know, planning that far ahead, I think is, is, is somewhat futile. Um, the, the best entrepreneurs uh, and even the best intrapreneurs in my mind, structure the path towards success in a set of experiments with some gates. And they say, okay, if I'm going to get to this end state and I have this idea of how the business model is going to work and I have the following unit economics uh, that would make this very profitable, I need to prove whatever it might be, technical viability. Then I need to prove uh, the distribution and channel market to actually get this thing out into the world. And then I need to prove X. And if all these things in this sequence prove true, then we can throw money at it to scale it and it'll be a worthwhile investment. Uh, and being able to pull those things apart and set up an orderly set of experiments that allow you to deploy risk capital to get to proof points that make you more confident in going to the next one and continuing on or stopping uh, is a very rare way of thinking. But in my mind, really good entrepreneurs do that. Really good intrapreneurs uh, can do it with great effect. Because if you, in the you know, world of startups, you can sometimes get away with not thinking of it that way. In the world of a large organization, if you're going to go ask for five or $10 million to go down whatever path, you're going to be a hell of a lot more successful if you go in and say, dear CFO, I need a million dollars to get to here. If it proves out, you know, then I think we're going to need to spend $2 million going to the next uh, gate here. But along the way, here's how we're going to cut our losses if any of these things don't pan out. So, that's that's the other thing I see people, you know, skip over or not really think about. I like it. Kind of a real options approach that um, there's a, a, a gate and that there's a, a second level of investment that's needed, but there's an exit plan if it doesn't work. I think that's really good advice. Yeah. Yeah, and pr prove some of the prove some of the big assumptions and big unknowns before you go double leverage your house or something. You know, <laughs> so. yeah, experiment small, quick. It's okay to fail fast, um, but limit those losses. Right? There's nothing more uh, uh, costly in time or treasure than failing slow. Love it. So. Maybe tell a little, us a little bit about how your knowledge and skill set has evolved over the, especially the last, you know, several years that you've been at a very large company. What's changed in kind of how you see the world or has anything changed in how you see the world and, and how you see business and, and how you see success from an organizational standpoint? For sure. Um, really interesting question. So, um, you know, I'm, 
as a as a big company guy, quote unquote, now um, some, I guess a Fortune thousand company, uh, I don't think I could have been as effective if I hadn't previously been in these entrepreneurial environments where you need to be very resourceful, you need to be very scrappy, uh, and you need to be very protective of your time. Uh, and you know, you do see a uh, a difference in some of the people that come from those backgrounds versus, you know, somebody that might spend an entire career where they don't get taught that at a large organization. Instead, they get very good at bureaucracy. Uh, so it's it's kind of a constant battle in my mind to make sure that a large organization has guardrails because it needs those, uh, but at the same time doesn't turn into a bureaucracy. So for myself, <clears throat> I found that, you know, venture capital and startups were a really good training ground for me to figure out how to identify and then prioritize what to execute on for the highest possible payoff. You've only got so many calories. You've only got so many hours in a day. Uh, there's no points for being busy all the time. So what things can I do that will have the outsized return on my investment of time, calories, et cetera? Uh, so VC and startups really teach you to prioritize that. Um, a large corporation, on the other hand, teaches you how to organize large groups and how to orchestrate them in order to execute big things. So some of the stuff that you know, I remember <clears throat> being a startup operator, oh, I wish we could do X or Y, right? Wouldn't that be great? And it's darn near impossible sometimes, and you just have to go to a, you know, a scrappier you know, version of that big idea you had. At a big company, you've got the capability to do those things, uh, but you need to be able to orchestrate it so that it actually happens and things happen in the right order and people don't get stuck and you're not wasting other people's time. And those are just, uh, you know, things that <clears throat> the startup world doesn't necessarily teach because you're dealing with such small groups and smaller problems and things that can be sequenced easier. Uh, a big company allows you to learn that. And for me, the... Um, the old Peter Drucker line, uh, let me see if I can try to get this right. Efficiency is doing things right. Effectiveness is doing the right things, right? And that to me is kind of where what you learn in a, a small company and what you learn in a big company uh, marries up, right? Uh, a startup operator is going to be very good at picking the right things for the highest payoff. And a big company gets very good at doing those things correctly once they're identified. So for me, it really brought it all uh, together. Um, but you do need, you know, some organizational buy-in to be allowed to execute that way. Um, I've been been fortunate through through my career to have uh, teams around me and you know executives that were uh, bought into the way I wanted to to execute and move quickly, and it's paid off well. Right? If uh, you know, if, if you look at for example, the past year of, of what we've accomplished as a marketing organization, I'm incredibly proud of, of this past year. Uh, and we, we changed a lot about our company. So we, uh, Diebold Nixdorf is the result of two very large companies in the financial technology space doing a merger about two years ago. Uh, we had to integrate uh, across, you know, an American working style, a German working style, and then, you know, all of the different hundreds of countries we operate in. Uh, and 
in in one year of you know kind of turning this marketing organization towards a more agile, uh, a more empowered, uh, a more startup kind of mindset. We've changed the visual voice of the company. We've launched a podcast. We've, uh, you know, increased our, you know, digital capabilities by over 300%. We've changed the, uh, the logo for the firm. I mean, just tip to tail, massive transformation of the way we describe ourselves. Uh, and those are things that, you know, if you, if you've got that startup mindset, you can, you can move mountains in a large corporation when you're, when you're given the reins to do so. So, so Devin, um, that brings up an interesting point. Uh, you talk about this merger of two companies, a, a German organization, an organization from the United States, and cultures. So as, as sort of chief marketing officer, you have overall responsibility across the globe, I would imagine, for these types of things. How do you sort of approach the cultural challenges, the work styles, the sort of expectations that people have in a global company? Yeah, that's that's a an ongoing uh, learning process and construction zone for everybody. Um, but, but I like to think that we've we've gotten pretty good at it. Um, but you know, you never get to the end of that road. Um, so, kind of coming into our merger, uh, I had been fortunate enough to to travel a lot in my roles in strategy and leading the product development teams and things like that. So, you know, for this company, I've, I've been all over the world and met tons and tons of our employees and spent time with them, you know, break bread, learn how they think, learn what's important to them. Uh, and there's a few things that, you know, kind of always come out as uh, pretty uniform, right? People want to work with other folks that respect their contributions and acknowledge it. Uh, people want to work in a work environment where you know, you don't have to put up with a jackass. Uh, people want to know that what they're doing is pretty. So there's there's all these kind of common threads that, you know, work across whatever cultures. And it's surprising how often you can lose sight of those little things that, that do pull people together. Um, the things that are, are more surprising are usually in some of the things around communication style, uh, some of the things in terms of what is considered a norm. So I'll give you a couple examples. So bringing together an American corporation and a uh, predominantly German one, you know, we didn't want to be the next Daimler Chrysler. So we, we were being very, very intentional about doing a, a lot of work to integrate our teams, spend a lot of time person together. We basically have, you know, a 50-50 integrated kind of leadership structure from these two companies that we brought together. And in the first couple months, we were really just, we were talking past each other. We were arguing about things. And then there started to appear. And once I noticed it, and I, I actually stopped the meeting and I explained this to my peers. Um, so an American corporate culture you know, a lot of these uh, companies, you know, founded after World War II, uh, a lot of military influence, very command and control oriented, uh, whoever the ultimate decision maker is who approves or, or disapproves of a decision. You know, if somebody downstream of me makes a bad decision, it's my uh, water to carry, 
right? So I have to live with it and I'm either going to you know, succeed or get fired based on what people downstream do. Uh, in the German culture, uh, a lot of their corporate culture is shaped by the fact that they have a very high degree of education, right? Uh, uh, advanced degrees are, are more heavily subsidized by the government. So there's, you know, more masters, more PhDs at work. And because of that, there's a very academic slant to it. So to make that very tangible, uh, we would have conversations where an American would say, we're going left, which to an American leader means I've taken all the input, I've made the decision, it's time to go left, everybody, and everybody moves left. In Germany, that is the opening of a vigorous intellectual debate on the merits of going left versus right versus going straight up and what the pros and cons of each would be. And if we don't vigorously and intellectually debate that, it would show a lack of respect for the decision-making process. So they will engage in a debate sometimes uh, purely out of what they think is politeness. And it was a startling moment when I watched us do it and I was like, holy cow, guys, you gotta know that he finds this insufferably arrogant and you have to know that he finds not debating it to be uh, very insufferably flippant. Um, so it's just it's a it's it's really interesting. And as you as you learn those sorts of things, then we kind of understand each other. We might still you know want to engage in the debate or what have you, uh, but you can become a very very effective management team once you kind of uh, latch onto those um, you know differences, which actually make you stronger. You know, for instance. Uh, if you work with anybody uh, from the Netherlands, right, they have a work style and communication style in, in the Netherlands where they can't sugarcoat anything to save their life. They just, they're culturally incapable of sugarcoating. And, but consequently, if you need to figure out where there's a problem, always ask the Dutch person, right? <laughs> You're going to get a straight answer. So I think it's a, you know, it's a never ending process to, to, you know, make all these different cultures and communication styles work together. It's the right amount of empathy and kind of understanding where each other's coming from. It makes you far more effective as a team. Hey, Devin, you know, that was, uh, I was sitting here listening to here, listening to what you were saying, and I'm going, uh, I'm glad we're recording this because the way you articulated that and the examples you gave were really spot on. And I think there's a lot of just wonderful lessons in there. So that was fabulous. Thanks. Happy to help, for sure. So we're starting to hit our time boundary here, which is a soft boundary. But Devin, one of the things that's always impressed me about you is your ability to connect to a wide range of people and give what I think has always been really thoughtful and, and meaningful advice to people. Um, so maybe you could share a little bit, and it's a little hard of the podcast. I know you have some experience in this domain, but it's hard because you don't exactly know your audience. But in general, if you're thinking about um, people who are maybe contemplating a career switch or people contemplating doing something entrepreneurial, what advice would you give them? Sure. So uh, maybe I could start with just some, some general ideas because uh, these are things that, that I personally try to enact um, and uh, bring into my, to my work style. And then maybe I'll pivot to, to more specifically to, to people that are in a, in a career um, change of one form or another. So the, the things that, you know, I, I try to think quite a bit about 
how I work, how I can be effective, uh, how I can maximize the, the outcomes of the time that I invest. And, you know, I, I think we should all think about these things because we've all got, you know, hobbies to pursue. We've all got families and, uh, you know, you can't let um, one part of your life dominate the others. So being super effective in the way that you work uh, and making it enjoyable, I think is important. And the attention economy that we're living in makes that damn near impossible unless you're really vigilant. So we've got all these things that are just kind of dragging on our time, uh, you know, all these different distractions. So I personally think a lot about doing deep work where you really concentrate, you're not being distracted, you're not being interrupted by email or phone calls. And when I get into that deep work mindset, I go all the way through on it. And, you know, sometimes that happens in a surprising place. Uh, I was ice climbing last season and, you know, I just, I had some time to myself while I'm climbing up the route and I'm a little bit on autopilot paying attention to what I'm doing, but all the other thoughts clear away. And I was able to, you know, crystallize one of my thoughts on how we're going to position a certain product line. Uh, so doing deep work all the way through, I think is important. Um, I try to touch items once and I think this is a, at least for me, this has been a breakthrough. Um, you know, if, if you're looking at email coming in or whatever, if I read it, I'm going to respond to it. If I'm not going to do anything about it right now, I won't even look at it. Uh, and then the third and fourth things that I think are just super important to, to help with your, you know, your sanity and your career tra trajectory. Don't be busy. It's, I think it's a toxic style that's emerged on planet Earth where people are proud of the number of hours. I'm proud of the outcomes. Uh, sometimes that means that, you know, I have to do 150,000 miles in the air, you know, in a year and, you know, miss birthdays and stuff like that. Other times, you know, I might have a 30-hour work week and get into workouts and a mountain bike ride and still get the same thing done. I'm going to be proud of the outcome regardless of how I got there. Sometimes I might have to really work hard. Other times it might just be easy for a change. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. And then the final thing is never be a bottleneck for your team. And this is a behavior that I think we've all seen in a lot of places. Um, but the idea of being a servant leader, so your job as a leader is to to break down barriers, to, to provide vision uh, to, the, to the teams that are, are working for you. And then make sure you're getting the hell out of the way. And if there's anything stopping them, you remove it. And sometimes the thing stopping them is they need to check in with you on X or Y. You got to make the time. You got to get that done. So you know, not being a bottleneck. So those, those are the things that I personally just think a lot about and try to, you know, do well against. Uh, in terms of career change, you know, that's a really interesting question, Mike, because I think, you know, for people that are early in their careers, uh, we're looking at a future that is going to be navigated very differently depending on what your background is, what your skill set is, and how that's going to uh, collide with this tsunami of automation, right? So, you know, I'm thinking of people in certain back office functions, right? Uh, you know, what's the future for accounting? I don't know, but I'd want to think large, long and hard about it. What's the future <clears throat> for uh, legal documentation? I don't know, but I would think long and hard about how it's going to collide with automation. So 
my two cents on, on career change and, and, you know, looking at potentially new ventures is, you know, I would seek to be as, uh, and I'm borrowing this term from somewhere else. I don't recall who originally said it, but I would seek to be as intellectually ambidextrous as I possibly could. Uh, because the, the more that you can, you know, understand technology, you can think in terms of very rigorous uh, problem solving, and you can apply some some art and some, some storytelling and some empathy to the way you then evangelize what you're trying to do, the more valuable you'll become and the more optionality you'll have in your career path. So, you know, I would encourage anybody that's you know, looking at a, a change of one type or another, uh, take it. Right? You know, if it meets that criteria of not pigeonholing you, of allowing you to uh, develop that intellectual uh, ambidextrous nature uh, and really round yourself out, I just think that's the formula for success in the future. Love it. Great, great words of advice and great things to think about for our listeners. Bela, last question. So, Devin, uh, is there anything else that uh, any other points that you'd like to make uh, or words of wisdom that you have to offer uh, to sort of our listeners before we uh, wrap this up? I think that was the smartest stuff I could come up with to say at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, I have one more question for you then. Okay. So how do you, how do you, I mean, you're, you, you have a family, you clearly like to do outdoor stuff. You have a pretty high demanding job. How do you sort of do the life balance tightrope? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, for me, that comes down to, you know, this, um, these set of things that I, you know, kind of keep front of mind that I mentioned, you know, doing your deep work all the way through touching items once, you know, refuse that metric of busyness, uh, and, you know, allow and enable your teams to execute. Um, you know, I'm not perfect at all those things, but they've, at least for me, they seem to be the recipe that allows for some level of, of sanity uh, as you balance, you know, your profession, your home life, your interests, all of those sorts of things. So for me, that's that's the recipe. And then tweaking those those dials um, uh, allows it to all kind of stay in at least some semblance of balance. Uh, and then for me, you know, I, I do a bunch of really weird human optimization stuff. So <laughs> for, in, in, uh, for instance, if I'm commuting, I'm always listening to some sort of super nerdy podcast. At the moment, I'm into a podcast from a guy named Peter Atia, who's a, a physician that thinks very hard about uh, uh, health span optimization and uh, enacting all these like little tricks that just help you. So for instance, uh, I won't eat any sugar or carbs until dinner. I can't get rid of them entirely. But if you get rid of your insulin spikes, your brain performs better throughout the day. Uh, you know, if you can have 30 grams of protein within 30 minutes of waking up, your body knows that it's not in a starvation mode uh, and you get uh, basically your, your body firing right. You don't end up with any insulin spikes. Uh, other things, if you get on a plane, right? You'll notice so many people get on a plane and have a cocktail and then suffer for the next 14 hours en route to Singapore or wherever we might be going. Uh, in, if 
you look around, the the folks that look more rested, uh, that are a little healthier and, you know, seem to be executing well, they get on the plane, they have a bottle of water and they go to sleep. Right. So there's just all these little tricks that I think, you know, if you build in uh, to your life, just help add to that performance nature and, um, you know, help uh, achieve that semblance of, uh, of balance. This is cool. I'll have to check that out. I mean, I like to say I have limited resources <laughs> and I need to do the best I can uh, with, with what I've been dealt. So uh, that's, that's cool stuff. Devin. Thanks. Well, gentlemen, I will say that as a uh, 60 plus year old, let me just leave it at that. Uh, I'm very interested in those types of things. Absolutely. It's uh, I, I find those, those little uh, changes to be just, fascinating and how they pay off right this this sugar one for me was was actually uh fairly transformative I'd, i made the choice like a year maybe a maybe a year and a half ago and uh for the simple reason that in a relatively normal work day i was back to back on everything and i i just i couldn't withstand that little dip that every human being has after lunch that was too much of a productivity hit for me to, to, to tolerate. So I said, all right, how do I, you know, make it so I can operate at, you know, 85% of cognitive ability for, you know, eight to 10 hours straight, get rid of every bit of sugar and you can actually do it. It's amazing. Right. So I'm going to try uh, an interesting cool. area. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what was, what, what was the name of that podcast again? Uh, it's called the Peter Atia Drive, and it's uh, got enough hardcore, you know, biology and molecular biology in it that uh, I absorb about thirty-five to forty percent of it. Uh, but Peter Atia and also Dr. Rhonda Patrick, uh, she has a podcast as well, uh, are just fascinating for performance optimization. Well, great! I will make sure that we put those in the show notes. So uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, hey, Devin, it was really great to catch up with you again. Uh, and uh, thank you very much for participating in uh, our podcast here. I think you uh, said a lot of really insightful things and that our listeners will really enjoy. Um, well, I really you appreciate wanna... it as well. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Like I said, you're the talent. Mike and I are just the, the narrators here. Uh, anything to, you want to close with, Mike? No, thanks, Devin. I really appreciate it, gentlemen. You guys have both uh, been uh, super influential in, in my career. And they love, you know, getting your coffee and doing all the grunt work for five years was a fantastic time that I wouldn't trade for anything. And, Mike, I, uh, I've always loved, you know, coming up to Clarkson and doing those business plan competitions. And uh, I've made a few fantastic hires out of your student body. So, Look forward to talking to you guys again. Great. Thanks, Devin. Thanks, Devin. Thank you, guys. Hey, Mike, I thought that was a great, great uh, interview and discussion with Devin. He had some really good takeaways. And uh, I also thought, you know, given the fact that you were in Germany, I was in uh, upstate New York, and Devin was uh, someplace in middle America. Where You remember where he was exactly? Uh, I think he's in Denver, uh, isn't he? Is it Denver? He's in Colorado. Or? Oh, okay. I thought Indiana. 
Well, yeah, no, no. Ohio is where Indi- home base is. Is he in Ohio still? Yeah. So I thought he was. Yeah, I think he was in Ohio. Anyway, uh, I thought it was uh, pretty good that that was one of our first uh, three-way uh, discussions and conversations, and I think it went pretty good. But regardless, so I thought Devin had a couple of really good gems. So what was your top takeaway, Mike? Well, I love this idea of having little tolerance for non-propulsive activities, quote-unquote, coming in from an entrepreneurship and a VC background into a big company. I love that, and I love how that dovetailed with his focus on he only cares about results, not about effort. It's not how much time you spend on something. It's how well you do the job at hand. What do you think, Bela? So I, I think that uh, right along with what you're saying, or I think this is an example of what you're just saying about this uh, low tolerance for non-propulsive activities or a real bias for action. Uh, I love the way he talked about when he decided he wanted to work in the venture capital business. Uh, he knew he didn't go to an Ivy League school, uh, so he knew he, that was a, a you know sort of a strike against him, I'll say. And uh, so, what did he do? He wrote an investment report. Uh, and investment reports uh, are exactly the thing that is uh, sort of the job that's done by entry level folks when they come into a venture capital firm. And uh, so he wrote one of these, and he sent it around along with his resume. And I just thought that was, you know, it was so thoughtful because it's not something that's typically done outside of the, if you're an architect, people do that all the time, right? They're looking for a job. They send out their portfolio. If you're an artist, whether uh, fine arts or performing arts, you send out, you know, audio tapes or pictures of your paintings or creative work. So in those industries, it's done all the time, but in sort of the uh, others parts of the world it's not done at all and he took that and applied it to finding a job in the venture capital business and that's what opened doors for him because people saw this and said oh wow here's an example of what this person actually does and how well they do it and uh as he told in his story that's what landed him or got the door open for him uh and then because he was a great guy we ended up hiring him at uh, high peaks venture ventures and uh that was great. So I thought that was my number one takeaway. Cool. And I, it just hit me because I'm a knucklehead. Diebold Nixdorf is headquartered in Canton, Ohio, also known as the home of the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Ah, excellent. Excellent. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're happy that you shared our podcasting adventure for this week with Devin Watson with us. And we hope you found the last hour or so interesting and thought-provoking. We have, as we always do, two small requests. If you have questions about what we discussed or questions for Devin, uh, suggestions about future topics or potential guests, uh, lay it on us. We'd love to hear from you. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. And number two, if you like what we're doing, hit subscribe on your podcast app if you haven't already or hit like. Uh, even be radical and consider writing a quick review from us. We'd really appreciate it. Uh, if you know people that might find this interesting, uh, please share us with them. That's it for this week. From here in scenic Schenectady, New York, thanks for spending time with us. We look forward to having you join us in our next episode. Hey, Mike, see you next week. Sounds good, Bela. Have a great week and auf Wiedersehen from Münster, Germany. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.